This is Competition Law with Professor Karon Beaton-Wells, exploring the challenges in competition policy, law and enforcement. This series looks at the impact of those challenges in a digital economy and on society overall, whether you're a citizen, consumer or competitor. In this episode, Karon speaks with Jeffrey Manny from the International Centre for Law and Economics. Jeffrey says size alone does not limit competition. What counts is whether companies are giving consumers what they want. Sometimes the incumbent is successful precisely because it has a better product. Google Plus simply couldn't offer as good a product as Facebook. I guess that would be its closest competitor. Bing wasn't able to offer as good a product as Google. So I think they just didn't do a good job. Here's Karon Beaton-Wells. While regulators around the world scramble to investigate the practices of large tech companies, not everyone agrees that we need to worry about big data and dominant digital platforms. Sure, we're giving away oodles of our personal data every time we swipe or click. But does that really matter? Previously on Competition Law, we've heard concerns about colossal consolidations of market power through data extraction and mining. Warnings were sounded about worrisome consequences for competition and consumer protection, for our privacy, and even our political processes. But these are not worries shared by all the expert folk. Some argue that we need to be more cautious about jumping to conclusions, especially about clamping down on companies that are making our lives so much better and easier. Jeffrey Manny is the executive director of the US think tank, the International Center for Law and Economics. Together with a network of affiliate scholars around the world, Jeff is skeptical downright critical even of arguments that we need to rethink our policy tools for the new online economy. The centre, led by Jeff, was established in the memory of Henry Manny, one of the founders of the discipline of law and economics. So, Jeff, I'm curious, is Henry a close relation? Uh, Indeed, Henry Manny was my father. So I come by my interest in law and economics genetically, I guess. That or the dinner table conversation somehow stuck with me. I didn't rebel like my sister. I used to teach law at Lewis and Clark Law School here in Portland, Oregon. And at some point during that teaching, I went to work at Microsoft. And Microsoft was very interested in building engagement with academics, in particular law and economics scholars. And uh, I was basic managing that program for them. At some point, I realized that that would be a beneficial relationship for lots of companies to have and not just Microsoft. And so I decided that I would start a think tank or a research center, part of the purpose of which was to connect companies with law and economic scholars and law and economic scholars with the policy world. And the goal of ICLE, the International Center for Law and Economics, is to promote law and economics in the academy and to help expand its influence on policy. One of the biggest policy battles out there at the moment, not just in the US, of course, but around the world, is policy battle around the regulation of big tech. And in that Mm -hmm. context, a lot of talk and attention being paid to issues of data collection and protection, including privacy, of course. And the question looms large, I know, for you, Jeff, and your colleagues and many others as to 
whether and how privacy should be incorporated into antitrust or competition policy. Um, I understand the theory and believe that a firm could conceivably act anti-competitively by adjusting its privacy practices. But I think a lot of things would have to fall into place for that to be true. While that could be true, it is simultaneously true for some people and not true for other people. And what I mean by that is that unlike price, everybody would like to pay a lower price for any given product. While some people do apparently care a lot about privacy, a lot of people don't care very much about privacy. The price that they would be willing to pay to get more privacy seems to be extremely low. Complicating matters further is that often the trade-off is not one between price and privacy. It's one between other product characteristics, other quality characteristics and privacy. By providing your data, you may be getting a higher quality product. Maybe that's most easily seen when it comes to targeted advertising. So if you are searching on the New York Times website or something like that, there will be display ads shown while you're reading an article on the side of the page, maybe. And if the New York Times has access to your data and can mine your data and find out the sort of things that you might be interested in, those display ads on the side of the page may, they won't always, but they may be relevant to you. You may care a little bit about what you're seeing there. So if you're a 45-year-old man looking at uh, an article about baseball, maybe the ads on the side will be ads for <laughs> for baseball merchandise golden or... retriever collars. Well, yeah, maybe baseball <laughs> yeah. merchandise. Some, something, that, something that might be relevant to you. Maybe you've shopped for those things in the past and the New York Times has that data. If it doesn't have that data, those ads may be ads for wedding dresses. They may be ads for wedding rings. They may be ads for Katy Perry CDs, things that you couldn't care less about. Hmm. So you're saying consumers prefer free and useful more than private? Certainly that's true for some consumers. I would argue that's probably true for almost all consumers, except for the very most privacy protective. And of course, the very most privacy protective can take measures to protect themselves. But I think for the most part, you're absolutely right. People would give up some information in order to have something that's more useful or more valuable to them. Now, the reason this is a problem then, going back to where we were before is, so you may have a product, online advertising product of some sort that offers you less privacy because it has some of your information, but offers you something more useful. So how would you measure whether there is any kind of antitrust relevant harm there? How would you measure whether consumers are being harmed? I think that practical, I want to say almost impossibility is what most makes concerns about privacy, even though they are validly considered to some extent a relevant aspect of product quality. I think that that fact makes them essentially, in many contexts, impossible to use in an antitrust analysis. I think there's another, perhaps more fundamental argument that you and some of your colleagues have made in this space, and that is that in order to be an antitrust harm, you'd have to be able to show that there is first an ability on the part of a company to degrade privacy, and then mm -hmm. let's assume there is such an ability, an incentive to do so. And you argue that those incentives are not really clear here, that it's perhaps not in the interests of Google and Facebook and co to degrade privacy. Can you extrapolate on that argument for us? In many situations, it's very clear that it would be cheaper to 
engage in more privacy protective activities than to engage in less privacy protective activities. And so one simplistic example would be data retention. The longer you hold on to data, it is argued that that is a potential privacy problem, that if companies are holding on to years and years and years of data, it's impossible for one to be forgotten. It means there's a potential for that information to get out. That's not something that lowers the cost to companies. It's very expensive to hold on to that massive amount of data. One argument is that if a company was to enhance its privacy offerings and policies, and that would mean they have less capacity to extract data, wouldn't that necessarily reduce their revenue? And I'm thinking, of course, of ad revenue especially. And if that's the case, where is the incentive to enhance privacy protection? Well, I think you raise a great problem about the complexity of understanding these markets. The problem is that they are what's called two-sided markets. They serve both the users on one side and then the advertisers on the other side. And assessing the consequences of their conduct requires looking at both of those together. You really can't quite get a hold on it by looking at just the one. And one of the reasons for that is exactly what you say, because advertisers obviously would like the platform to collect more information and provide the advertisers with this increased amount of information because they believe anyway, in some cases it must be true, that they can use that to better target their ads and presumably make more sales, which of course ultimately translates into more revenue for the platform. And I don't doubt that that's true. I think that dynamic must in fact be the case, but I don't think that it's possible for reasons we talked about before, to identify that as an inherent harm, all it's doing in the context we've been talking about is allowing the advertisers to offer more better targeted ads, which for many people would actually be an increase in the quality of the product they're purchasing. At the same time, I don't think it can be said that a platform's revenue is only dependent on what the advertisers do. Obviously, if a platform were willy-nilly stealing data in ways that it wasn't disclosing to users and giving it away to advertisers, consumers would flee the platform. And I don't think that would be good for the platform's revenue. But at the margins, I think it's probably accurate to say that because consumers don't care that much about privacy, that the platform can increase the amount of information it collects and thereby increase its revenue. But Again, I'm not sure that that's a problem. We've seen an explosion of regulatory interest and activity by consumer protection agencies, by data protection agencies in recent years in response to this. So do you have any concerns about this regulatory onslaught from an antitrust point of view? Do you see it as possibly distorting or um, holding back the innovation in this space and that that would be deleterious to competition? Yeah, that does concern me. I think there's some good evidence to suggest, for example, that when it comes to something like the GDPR in Europe, that larger companies will have a much easier time complying than smaller companies. This is true with most regulations, that the cost of complying with regulations has a pretty substantial fixed component to it. And the big companies are able to deal with that much better than small companies. And some small companies, according to some evidence I've seen, will not come into existence or will constrain the scope of their operations, will will be less innovative in that sense, precisely because of the cost of compliance with those regulations. It may be worth it, of course, if society decides as a political matter that 
being that protective of privacy is worth some loss in terms of innovation or increase in prices. You know, I think that's fine to decide that again as a political matter, but as an antitrust matter, as a matter of a discipline that is concerned with consumer welfare, and again, lowering the costs and increasing the value of products to consumers. Well, it'll be very interesting to see how this shakes out, say, in the U.S., where we're starting to see noises about the possibility of a baseline privacy law being passed that would apply to online service providers like Google and Facebook, but also ISPs that are providing the network connections Mm. to the Internet. Certainly, it's a very hot topic from a political perspective. And I do want to talk to you a bit about the politics, which fascinates me. But can we stick with this question of possible barriers to entry, which you've raised implicitly in your last response? You're referring to privacy regulation being a regulatory barrier to entry. But more generally, of course, you'll be aware of the argument that massive data collection and analysis in themselves create barriers to entry in the sense that data is an asset or an input and access to that by smaller or new competitors might be foreclosed by the big data collectors who already have a massive data footprint. And so the argument is the upstarts are not going to ever be able to get the same data at scale or the resources to analyze it so as to really challenge the incumbents, Google and others. Now, I think you've called that argument dubious. Why why would you say that? The reality is that there are lots of different ways of getting at the same thing that all of these companies in the online environment want, which is ultimately the ability to offer better environments for targeted advertising, which means at the end of the day, that the companies don't particularly care about the data per se. They care about the user's underlying preferences that they may be able to infer from the data. But there are lots and lots of types of data that can allow a company to do that. Facebook collects very different data than Google does. And yet Facebook is a very successful online advertising competitor with Google, precisely because it has an ability using very different data to offer advertisers the ability to target their ads to likely purchasers. The other thing, of course, is that the fact that Google, for example, knows when your birthday is, doesn't preclude Facebook, Uber, or anyone else from also knowing when your birthday is. All they have to do is provide a setting in which you're willing to convey that information. The fact that Google has it doesn't mean that they can't get it. And of course, we've seen entry in lots of different ways in these markets in the past. And I don't think there's any reason to think that it's been foreclosed by the fact that there are incumbents who already happen to have a lot of data. Mm. I think from what you're saying, you would not be an advocate of the commonly used analogy nowadays that data is like oil, because of course, oil once extracted and mined by one company can't be extracted and mined by another. But What then would you put down to the fact that there have been some rather colossal failures in startups, including those with tremendous backing? And I'm thinking of Bing, that failed to challenge Google, presumably on your argument, same data available to Bing as is available to Google. And Bing, of course, had Microsoft behind it, spending, I think, reportedly 4.5 billion US dollars to develop its algorithms. Yeah, well, I think that the answer to your question must be, as it always is, that sometimes the incumbent is successful precisely because it has a better product. Google Plus 
simply couldn't offer as good a product as Facebook. I guess that would be its closest competitor. Bing wasn't able to offer as good a product as Google. So I think they just didn't do a good job. Every company was once a startup and faced the same barriers that the subsequent entrants did. And so the mere fact that it might be difficult or costly, I don't believe is itself an antitrust problem. It's just an indication that it's a costly market to enter. But if you can convince investors that you can do so successfully and offer a good product, I don't see any reason why you shouldn't be able to raise the money. Or if you're Microsoft, you know, dip into your bank account yeah. and, and <laughs> use the money you have. And I'm guessing also that from what you've said, you wouldn't place a lot of weight in the argument about network effects. It's a topic that's been talked a lot about on this podcast by Morisaki and Dick Schmelanzi and others as a potential source of barriers to entry. And of course, I'm referring there to the fact where a platform that has users that improve its service then are able to attract more, who attract more, and that will tend to a winner-takes-all situation in the market. I mean, even the OECD recognizes that as a legitimate argument. I, I guess a couple of things in response. The first is that, as I like to point out, in the very first instance, network effects are beneficial rather than costly. The reason that they may have some ability to prevent subsequent competitors from entering is precisely because they offer something of great value. And there are no doubt some markets in which scale is extremely important and the larger scale you have up to a point, there are always diminishing returns, but up to a point, having larger scale enables you to offer a higher quality product. This opens up a whole big can of worms about how one might regulate these companies if they need regulating. But let's just start by saying for now that the fact that a company may have network effects and that that may make it more costly, but not impossible for a new entrant to enter is not necessarily a bad thing because it means at some level that that incumbent is in fact offering a better product than the competitor could offer. The second thing though, is that we see it all the time that large incumbents with large scale from network effects are toppled by new competitors. You know, the most famous example is probably Facebook toppling MySpace. And as you may know, shortly before MySpace became the answer to a trivia question, someone famously wrote an article, I think in The Guardian, with the title something like, what are we going to do about the MySpace monopoly? <laughs> yeah. Something like that. Well, it, it, you know, it turned out that we didn't have to do anything because a better product Competition did it. Yeah. And if it's enough better, yeah, competition did it. That doesn't undermine the point that competition may be more difficult in the face of network effects. I have no doubt that that's true, but it, it is important to remember that that doesn't mean that competition is impossible in the face of network effects. I think another thing to remember here is that in certain ways, network effects can, as I said, improve the quality of an existing product that has that large scale. That almost never comes, maybe even we can say never comes, without the large scale also undermining the quality of the product. And you have to look no further than Facebook to see with all of these debates about fake news and some of the other allegedly deleterious characteristics of Facebook, you know, in part, those are a function of the fact that Facebook has situated itself, has designed its product to enable this massively large scale and these multitudinous interactions among people on the platform. It's going to connect the world, um, right? Right, exactly. Mm. And there are people in the world that you may 
not really want to be connected sure. to. And yet, you know, the Facebook platform was built to facilitate that. So you could imagine that a very successful competitor to Facebook could be someone who comes along and says, listen, we're not offering exactly the same thing as Facebook. We've learned from Facebook and we have improved our product and we're offering something that does enable connections and it is a social network, but it has certain constraints that we think while there may be some costs in terms of the ability to say, connect with anyone you want at any time, offer you something that would be a better product. And of course, as we've seen, I don't know if that description exactly describes say Snapchat or Instagram, but I think that's not a bad description of Snapchat. Snapchat is not quite the wide open connecting the world kind of network that Facebook is. It seems to me, but I have to confess that it's only my teenage daughter who, <laughs> who actually uses Snapchat in the household. You sort of, you have smaller and more controlled communities in Snapchat than you do on Facebook. It's interesting that you raise Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook in the same sentence because, of course, as we know, Facebook uh, snapped up Instagram and has been trying to snap up Snapchat and hasn't been able to. And that raises the question as to whether the large data incumbents, can they use their stockpile of data to spot the potential rival before it scales up to effectively compete, to monitor emerging business models and snuff them out before they become competitive threats? What's your view on that argument? Well, so, you know, the problem is that that to me sounds like competition. It's frequently said not only that Facebook wants to buy a Snapchat. I mean, I know that they have made offers, but I think it's been a while. But perhaps more importantly, that they've looked at successful features of Snapchat and copied them and offered them on the Facebook's own platform, you know, allegedly in an effort to prevent users from decamping to Snapchat because they can get the same aspect of the product on Facebook. And the argument is Snapchat will never be able to compete with that because every time it comes up with something new and innovative, Facebook will just adopt it itself. To me, though, what that says is Facebook is spending a lot of competing. money to improve its product, mm -hmm. continually improving its product, precisely in the ways that it sees that its users want. So we're talking about size a lot and bigness. You'll be aware, of course, that for a number of scholars and other commentators in the US and in other places, it's the very size that's the problem. It's the issue of concentration and that's seen as the very vice that antitrust is supposed to prevent or tackle. Thoughts on that, Jeff? Yeah, so um, I have a real problem with that because I've yet to see anyone really do a good job of explaining how size itself actually causes harm. There are people who think that our democracy is better served by having lots of small mom and pop shops than large behemoths like Amazon and Walmart out there. That's their preference. And if the politicians and the voters decide that that's a preference that we want to put into law, we can put that into law. But I don't see how that's an inherent harm of bigness. Again, that's just a, an idiosyncratic preference. Some people would say that large companies get political power and that is costly and harmful and problematic. And yet I would point out that I don't think anyone has demonstrated, in fact, I'm sure no one has demonstrated, at least that I've seen, that political power actually correlates with size. There are lots of very small companies that have very successfully lobbied governments over the years to do things that benefit them. And these are companies not even remotely like the Googles and Facebooks of the world or uh, 
small drug manufacturer. I, I mean, but you surely you're not arguing that small businesses have the same lobbying resources and influence in Washington, Brussels, and other places that big businesses do. Well, I don't think that lobbying costs that much. I mean, what I think is that, of course, the, if you're a very small company, you may not have those extraneous resources around. But if Apple has $435 million in the bank, that may even be low. I don't know what it is exactly. It's using a minuscule fraction of that for lobbying. I don't think it's the case that there is some sort of a very clear correlation. It's a very disjointed uh, line. Mm. This ties in with a broader debate that's going on in the US, especially around the proper scope and goals and effectiveness of antitrust and its enforcement. Tell us where you and the center with which you're associated sit in that debate. I think if you you had to try to distill it, I do think that it is an effort to use the antitrust laws to effectively enact social policy preferences that for one reason or or another are not being enacted through the traditional political process. Privacy is arguably an aspect of this. I think that it's become clear to some people that perhaps because of the intentional vagueness of most antitrust laws, that they can be used to accomplish a lot of things. And there is an effort to try to use them to accomplish a lot of those things. And the history of antitrust is... I was going to say ambiguous, but maybe ambivalent is a better word in this regard. But it's not like we haven't had 100 plus years of experience with their operation to learn that when you allow these other sorts of policy preferences to determine how you enforce antitrust laws and what you're trying to do with the antitrust laws, that they become excessively politicized and don't actually operate to the benefit of the consumers and and others that they may be intended to protect. Antitrust is about promoting and increasing competition. And we're going to stick with that, right? And if your concern is about inequality, then deal with that somewhere else. So I think the debate is at its core about whether we should move away from that position and incorporate these other policy preferences into our antitrust analysis. And I think that would be really problematic and difficult. So let's just round up by talking briefly about where you see the US and the EU authorities, and I'm referring here to the competition agencies, not so much to the politicians, on this debate that we've been canvassing, because many see the European Commission and some of the authorities in the national European states as way out ahead of the US authorities on big tech. Of course, many would be aware the European Commission found liability in the way in which the Google algorithms were demoting rival shopping services to its own, whereas, as I understand it, there was an investigation in the US into the same practices some years ago, and the US agencies decided not to intervene. Yeah, I think it's a great example. It's almost a textbook example, but I'm glad you raised it. I'm happy to to talk about it there. For reasons we talked about before, it is very difficult to identify exactly what the harm would be in these markets, in part because consumers are paying zero price, because entry is very frequent. There was no indication that prices for advertisers went up, for example. There was no indication that product prices went up. I mean, the only thing that EU could really point to as a harm was the fact that Google was treating its own shopping service better than third-party shopping services, and 
arguably, sometimes, that meant that some of these services went out of business. Now, the EU didn't actually make that last connection because it's very hard to draw that line. They sort of inferred it. But again, what was really, I think, it's a little, as I said, a little hard to tell, but at the root of the Europe case was this differential treatment. From what we can tell, the FTC determined that there could be a problem from favoring one's own product to the exclusion of others, but only if you could demonstrate actual foreclosure, only if you could actually demonstrate that the third party shopping sites, let's say, simply could not compete without the same quality of access or the same level of access that Google shopping service could get, that there weren't other outlets through which they could reach consumers. You'd have to see something, some sort of concrete harm that competition would have to be diminished, that there would be some harm to competitors. What I'm getting to is that I think in the U.S. case, they basically determined that this differential treatment was a possible theory of harm, but that without much, much better evidence than they had, and I'm sure that they had enormous amounts of evidence, would be my guess, um, that they weren't willing to risk the error costs we were talking about before and turning that into an actual harm that led to liability. And in Europe, they decided differently, but took a very different error cost approach and importantly decided that the extent of evidence and the extent of proof of harm could be much, much lower. In fact, arguably non-existent and yet still merit bringing a case. At the end of the day, the European law is somewhat different than the US law. And as importantly, the norms under which the European law was originally enacted and, and has operated for, for years is definitely different. As an economist, as someone who thinks that the consumer welfare approach as primarily but not exclusively practiced in the US is the right one, again, I, I find fault with this decision. but. To the extent its politics are different, you know, who am I to judge their politics? That's Tower of Power from 1973 with What is Hip? A song that Jeff says sums up what's going on in this big big data debate. He argues that some commentators and maybe even some regulators are shooting from the hip when they argue big is bad. For Jeff and others, it's important to remember that competition policy or antitrust is about our economic welfare as consumers. And he's not convinced that there's enough evidence that Google, Facebook, Amazon and co are doing things we should worry about from that perspective. And yet, the European Commission slapped Google with a knee-wobbling fine, more than 2 billion euros. Next on Competition Law, we're going to talk more about that now infamous case with someone who's close to the action, Professor Pina Ackman from the University of Leeds. I'm looking forward to hearing where she sits in the debate. Until then, you can find links to some of Jeff's work, as well as that quirky T.O.P. song in the show notes. You'll find them alongside our blogs and other resources at competitionlawlore.com. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and please leave us a review. Competition Law was produced by writtenandrecorded.com. I'm Karan Beaton-Wells. See you next time.